All right, well, good morning, New City, and thanks for joining us today. I want to introduce you to a term that some of you might not be familiar with, and it is the surrender cobra. Now, the surrender cobra is what you do when your team is in a close game, and they, something dramatic happens at the end of the game, and uh, it doesn't go in your favor, and you lose. So you see a couple of pictures of this. Here, here's the first one. Right, it's called the Surrender Cobra. So some of you might remember this is the Auburn uh, pick, kick six games where Auburn or Alabama kicks a field goal. They run it back at the last play of the game and they win. It's like, oh, my team lost. Right, here's, here's another one. Right, there's, there's all over the place. If you just Google Surrender Cobra, this like, last second, I think this was a punt that blocked and then the Michigan State beat Michigan. Uh, I think there's another one, just another random, you know, Oklahoma State. Like it just, all the time it happens. Now, um, now, sometimes, again, you're expected to win and you're not. Now, we're not going to talk about what happened last night. Instead of talking about what happened last night, there's another picture I want to share. share. Um, I was going to, like, circle the person that was doing it, but I think for just a second we need to find this. Just look at this for a second. Let's just look at this for a second. There's a guy in the middle. There's a buzzer beater. Okay, so, yeah, we won't talk about last night. We'll talk about that one. Right, so that's what happened. It's like, oh, no, I lost. And, of course, the flip side to every Surrender Cobra is someone really, really excited. And so a couple years ago, this guy went viral on ESPN Sports Center. Here's the other one. Like, his team won. Some of you State fans might remember this moment. They beat Florida State. And the security guard's, like, trying to get this guy off the flagpole, and he's, like, not listening to him, right? And so that's what happens, right? Some team loses. They're really upset. And some team wins. And I share that because today we're going to read a story in Luke chapter 7, where basically you could define it like this. One dude is throwing a party, and one dude is throwing a fit. One dude's throwing a party, one dude's throwing a fit. So if you want to join along with this, you can take out the Bibles in front of you, or the Bibles below your seat. We'll be in Luke chapter 7 if you want to read along, page 915. Now, uh, today is the last week of our series, Controversial Jesus. And in this series, we've been looking at the teachings of Scripture and Jesus that are in stark contrast with our world. And so that's what makes them controversial. What's helpful uh, to know for today's sermon is that some of the stuff we read about Jesus with th that he does and is controversial in our culture weren't exactly controversial in his. But because culture changes, certain things that are a big deal in one culture aren't necessarily a big deal in another. And then some of the stuff that our culture loves about Jesus were actually radically controversial uh, in his culture. Or sorry, his culture. So for example, uh, the things that maybe we think are controversial, but maybe weren't for his time, at least for the Jewish audience that he was speaking to, was his sexual ethic, was his teaching on hell, was his reverence and his belief in the scriptures, uh, was his teaching on marriage. Like these are things that like, not to say they all practice this in the first century you know, Jewish world, but they would not be surprised for Jesus to say these things. Now, our context is so different. And so in this series, we've looked at some of these topics and we've seen, man, it's pretty different for us than for them. However, for Jesus, in his time, again, what was, I would say this, I would submit this to you, what was most controversial about Jesus was not necessarily the behaviors he condemned, but rather the people he embraced. It was the people he embraced. And so, uh, given the state of our culture today, we're going to talk about the grace of Jesus. This is not maybe controversial to us because we're so used to hearing it, or we, we at least like we cheer on, you know, the down and the out. But I think even our culture today, where we're quick to cancel, we're quick to say, hey, if you don't think, vote, dress, and act like I do, then you are the enemy, we might be able to pick up on some of this tension that the first century Pharisees and just regular Jewish people might have picked up on with Jesus uh, being around and doing things with people that everyone else would say, hey, those are the bad guys. Why are you with them? So we're going to read a story about that today, where Jesus is invited into the house of a Pharisee for essentially a dinner party, if you will. And here's what it says. Chapter 7, verse 36. Verse, verse 36 says this. 
Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. So one of the religious leaders of the day invites Jesus to eat with him. He entered, he being Jesus, entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, if you have some familiarity with the New Testament, you might be kind of confused because you might be thinking, well, I thought the Pharisees didn't like Jesus, or many of them, right? They're often testing him. They're trying to get him into trouble, trying to show people, you know, accuse him of blasphemy and all these type of things. And so why would a Pharisee then invite Jesus into his house? Well, it's, it's helpful to know by Luke 7 and Luke's gospel, at this point, Jesus is pretty much famous. Like he's healed a lot of people. He's done a lot of miracles, a lot of crowds. Everywhere he goes, like he, he draws a crowd. And so people of influence in the communities in which he traveled to, uh, just like today, would host dinner parties, would have, get their friends together. And also in this time period, you would typically leave your front door open. Partially is because there's no air conditioning, but partially is because you want people who are walking by, because a lot of these population centers, at least in the city, are pretty dense. As people walk by their house, you want people to know who is at your house. It's kind of like maybe a first century version of an Instagram collaboration with a celebrity, right? Like you give each other credibility just by being together. So the fact that Jesus would come to this Pharisee's dinner party and people are walking by, everybody wants to be around Jesus. Well, Jesus goes to his house. It would boost the credibility of this Pharisee. I mean, the text doesn't say this, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that Jesus was probably invited for this Pharisee's own personal social gain. So he invites Jesus to his house, and it says they reclined at the table. So I, I, this is a picture just to kind of give you an idea of what it looks like. It's not like us, uh, you know, we kind of like sit at chairs at tables. In the ancient world, you'd have a table on the ground, or sometimes the table would be elevated, and you'd have like couches on the ground, and you'd kind of lay down, uh, typically on your left shoulder, you'd eat with your right, and your feet would be extended out. So this is like, what's, just to give you a picture of what's going on here, you have all these people, at this point, they're having dinner, as we'll find out in a second, and they're all kind of around the table like this, kind of lying on the ground, feet out. So this is the picture you want to see as we read about what is going to happen. So verse 37, it says this, And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. So they're reclining at the table, an unnamed woman who was a sinner, um, or one way, I think one translation I was looking at was a Carolina fan, or um, <laughs> no, a more literal translation would actually be a woman of the night. In other words, this one was a prostitute. So a prostitute comes into the Pharisee's house because from the outside, see, she sees that Jesus is in there. And he brings, she brings a, uh, a, a jar of perfume or her ointment with her. Now, two things are helpful to, for context real quickly of what this means. Number one, uh, what she has with her, her ointment, her perfume is very expensive, even more so for someone like her. This was likely her most prized possession, at least monetarily. So her perfume, her ointment is the most uh, financially uh, expensive thing that she owns and she's bringing it. The second thing to know is someone like her, that this was actually a tool of her trade, right? To use modern language, it was essentially a marketing tool to get clients. So often a woman like this would, would, would wear these kind of perfumes and ointments and jars around their neck in public with a small flask attached to them. And it was essentially a signal to men, to, to the men who are look, looking to use women, that, that I'm available. And then you would kind of really get to, I don't mean to be crass here, but, but you would kind of be, you would, you, you would be known by your scent, if you will. Like that's how you would kind of draw people out, for people to find out you if they were looking for you. So to men who were looking, they would often first smell the product. They would look around and say, oh, she's the one. Like, she's the one I'm looking for. She's the one I've been with in the past, and I'm looking for her again. 
It's kind of like tool of your trade. And so this is what she's bringing with her. Verse 38, it says this. And she stood behind him. Remember, his feet are out. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him, so the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner, right? So he sees this. He's, I think, upset. I think a lot of us would be like, what in the world's going on? Does Jesus not know if he was truly a prophet, he would know who she is and that she's touching him. Now, here's what's going on. For us, maybe we're not kind of confused on why this is a big deal. Here's why it's a big deal for them. If you were in ancient culture and you're reading this story, first century, or you're in the room, you would be like, what in the world is happening? Now, now here's what's happening. In the ancient world, and even in many parts of the Middle East today, um, uh, and it's certainly obviously in this time period, a woman would never let her hair down uncovered in the presence of a man who was not her husband. So most often it was covered in some way. Now, sometimes it's like fully covered, or sometimes it's just like something, you can still see the woman's hair, but there's something on top of her head. That's how you would go as a woman in public. In fact, in some places, it was actually legal grounds for divorce in some communities if a man so choose, if his wife chose to go out in public without anything on her head. But for them, it was such a sign of disrespect because in their culture, what it communicated is I'm available. That's essentially what it communicated. It's it's not like the same apples to apples comparison, but I'm trying to like maybe give you a modern analogy of of what, what that would be like. It's like, you know, if you're leaving to go out of town on a business trip, and you're married, and you intentionally take off your wedding ring and leave it at home. Not because like you lost it or doesn't fit. Like you, you're going out of town. You know you're going to be around people. You know you're away from home, and you intentionally do not wear your wedding ring, right? If you're married and your spouse did that, you'd feel unloved and disrespected. So that's kind of what's going on here. She's, she comes, she wipes her hairs, his, his feet with her hair. In other words, she is doing with Jesus what she previously would only do with her customers, with their customers. Now, just for imagine for a sec that you're like at a pastor's gathering or I'm at a pastor's gathering, right? Hanging out with a bunch of pastors and a woman of the city uh, it comes in and approaches me and starts interacting with me in a way that she only does with her customers, right? Everyone in the room would be thinking, one, how do they know each other? And two, what in the world is about to happen? Like it would make people feel uncomfortable. So that's what's happening here. She's touching him. She's doing things that are like, this is weird. And the, and the Pharisee is like, man, he's obviously not a prophet because if he was, he would know who she was. And then verse 40, check this out. It says this, Jesus replied to him, Simon, who is the Pharisee, his name is Simon. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. The Pharisee responded. Now, This Pharisee, again, sees this goes down. He sees this prostitute come into his house, starts to anoint Jesus' feet, wipe his feet with her hair, uh, or wash his feet with her hair and with her tears. She sees what's going on. And um, again, he thinks, verse 39, he doesn't say it out loud. He thinks to himself, if he was a prophet, he wouldn't do this. He would not let her touch him. Now, here's the irony. Jesus here is about, we're going to read a second. He's about to respond to Simon the Pharisee's mind and his thoughts because he is a prophet. So he's about to respond to what Simon thought, and Simon's like, well, he ain't a prophet. So he's about to read his mind. 
And secondly, the reason Simon thinks it's a big deal that Jesus should know who is touching him is because in this culture, some of, some of this came from scripture itself and some of this came from different traditions that kind of got added on later itself. There were a lot of cleanliness laws, how to be ritually pure and ritually clean. And if you're a religious leader, it is imperative that you stay ritually clean so that you can go to the temple and do various things, right? Uh, so uh, I want to say this too. A lot, a lot of, you could do a lot of things that made you unclean and not necessarily were sinful. So if, you're, if you touched a dead body, if you came across someone who had various diseases or whatever, you would become unclean. You'd have to do a very, a various rituals and various things, and then you could become clean again. So you're not necessarily unclean because you've sinned. It could just be because of something you came in through. But anyway, lots of things can make you unclean. And then you'd have to go through a bunch of rituals to become clean again. And if you're a religious leader, this is a problematic because you're constantly in the temple interacting with people. And so traditionally, what would happen here is that contact with a woman like this, at least in their minds, would make you unclean in typical circumstances. So it's a big deal that she's touching Jesus. Yet we do know if you read the scriptures that Jesus is actually the one who makes unclean things clean and not vice versa. It's kind of like maybe in modern language, Jesus is the ultimate hand sanitizer, except that he doesn't kill 99.9% .9 of germs, he kills 100, okay? So we see, when you come in contact with Jesus, instead of you infecting Jesus, if you will, he cleans you. So while this woman might be a quote-unquote threat to other people, she is not a threat to Jesus, She's not a threat to Jesus. So, so again, here's what you have going on. This woman is worshiping Jesus. She's treating him as someone to be honored. And then you have Simon who is whining about what he is seeing internally. She's worshiping. She's honoring. He's upset. He's whining. That's, this, that's what's going on here. Then it says this in verse 40. Again, I'll read verse 40. I'll keep going. Jesus replied to him, even though he didn't say anything, just he replies to his mind. Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. Verse 41, Jesus says this, a creditor has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. If you were to maybe put modern language, essentially someone was in debt for two years worth of wages. They'd have to work for two years and that's how much debt they've accumulated. Another person is in debt for like two months worth of wages. Now, of course, when you live and work, whatever, it's not like 100% of your income can go off to paying that debt. But let's just, I don't know, let's say maybe... 15,000 and 100,000. Let's just say that. There's two debts. They owe a lot of money, okay? Verse 42. Since they could not pay it back, so neither one of them could pay back the debt they owed, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? So Jesus is telling a story. This debtor, two people owe him money, but he forgives both of the people that owe him money. Who's going to love him more, Jesus asks. Verse 43, Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. And then check this out, verse 44. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon. So he's talking to Simon, tell, telling him this parable. Who do you think is going to love this, this uh, creditor more? And Simon says, the one who forgave him more. And then while he's still talking to Simon, he turns to the woman, stares at the woman, and he's talking to Simon, okay? So this, this is like a tense situation here. He's, talking to, he's, talk, he's staring at the woman, he's talking to Simon, and he says this. Do you see this woman? Okay, staring right at the woman. Do you see this woman? The implication here is that Simon doesn't. What Simon sees is a sinner. What Simon sees is a failure. Right? He sees someone that repulses him. Uh, if you visited her in the night, you would see her as someone to be used. But what Simon does not see is someone who is valuable. 
right? You do not see someone who is actually loved by God. You do not see someone who is actually searching for God, right? Simon doesn't actually see her. So again, Jesus is staring at this woman. He's talking to Simon. And then he continues by saying this, while he's staring at this woman, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she has loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. This is who, uh, this is who were at the table. Oh, sorry. Those who were at the table with him. So these are the other dinner guests began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? So again, he's staring at this woman, talking to Simon. Everyone else is watching what is happening here. And they're also taken aback, right? Because for them, only God can forgive sins. If you're a good, faithful Jew, only God has the ability to forgive sins. Because according to their understanding, ultimately, when you sin against somebody else, you never just sin against the person. You're also sinning against God and his commands and his laws in your life. And so if all sin is ultimately committed against God, as the scriptures that they valued, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible teaches, then only God can forgive sins and not a man. So you see there's a problem here. Who is this man that he claims to forgive people? And then Jesus goes a step further. Verse 50, he says this, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith. What's interesting was he does not say, your courage to come in here and anoint me with oil or to not be afraid of what it looks like in front of the people, not your actions, although her actions are honorable. He says it's her faith that has saved her. Now, why is this such a big deal? Here's why it's a big deal for them. And I think if we're honest, for us. You see, in their minds, God's love and acceptance of you is based on your obedience to him. God's love and acceptance for you is based on your obedience to him. So the more righteous, the more obedient you are, the more God loves you and the more God accepts you, right? And so what this means is that, is that the good people are in and the bad people are out, right? The moral people are in, the immoral people are out, the righteous people are in, the sinners like this woman are out, so, so practically what this means is that Simon and the Pharisees are in because they do a lot of quote-unquote good things, and this prostitute is out, and Jesus should know that. Like, Jesus, you're a prophet, you're teaching all these things, you're a rabbi, you should know that this woman is out and should not be here. But of course, the problem with Jesus is that Jesus comes and he kind of blows up all the uh, internal assumptions and systems of the day and even our day. So for example, in Luke chapter five, Jesus says this, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, right? Or things like Matthew 21, 31 says this, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. In other words, the bad people. Some of the bad people are going to come in before you. 
So therefore, what we see happening here is that God's love and acceptance is not based on your effort or your actions, but rather it is based on something else. And think about this way. In order for sinners and tax collectors to be welcomed in first, it has to be something else. In order for people who have sinned or have done things that they should not have done, for them to be first in the kingdom of God, it has to be based on something else other than your effort. Now, I want to make this real for just a second. Um, the visceral reaction of hearing tax collectors and sinners or tax collectors and prostitutes is not for us what it was for a first century audience. Especially if, you're, if you've read the Bible, you're kind of used to these phrases, you know Jesus loves the down and out, and so you can read these things and not be put off by it, right? We don't really understand the uncomfortableness about what Jesus is saying here. And so I just want to give you maybe a couple practical examples, maybe modern day examples that depending on your political persuasion or some of your uh, beliefs or ideologies might sound really upsetting. And can I just tell you, if we live in the first century, we would all be like not sure how we feel about what Jesus just said here. So let me just give you some modern examples. It would be like Jesus saying this, truly I tell you, the Russians and the Palestinians are entering the kingdom of God before you. I mean, what are, or it could be like this. The Democrats and the socialists are entering the kingdom of God before you. Like, oh, he's mentioned, but this is weird, right? Okay, we knew both sides. The Republicans and the capitalists are entering the kingdom of God before you. Or maybe one that we could all maybe kind of feel some sort of way about. What if Jesus said this? The wealthy CEOs and the billionaires, the Elon Musk and the Bill Gates, they're coming in before you, right? Or what about this? Um, the online scammers who preyed on el elderly people, they're coming in before you. I, all of us would be like, mm, if you're a Jewish person, this is how you essentially would have viewed a tax collector. And Jesus is telling you that bad guys can come in first, right? Uh, the Carolina Tar Heels are coming in. Like there's, there's lots of ways that you could do this. But in other words, here's what Jesus is saying. That the people who you might, and by the way, rightly take issue with for whatever reason, because evil and sin is, is, it does exist. So there might be some people like you take issue with an online scammer preying on an elderly person. Like all of us would be like, mm, I don't like that, right? Some of the people who you might even rightly take issue with, what Jesus says is that some of these people will get access before you no, much, no matter how much of a better person you think you are. That's what he's saying here. The question then becomes, well, how is that possible? How is it possible for the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the people that vote differently than I do or do things differently than I do? How can they get in first if they are in the wrong, if they are bad? Well, because of things like Ephesians chapter 2, here's what the Apostle Paul says, verse 8 and verse 9. For you were saved by grace. You are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Right? Your salvation, then, is not based on what you have done in the past, but, what, but, rather, but, what, but rather on what someone else, Jesus, has done for you. It is based on the grace of God given through Christ that saves us and redeem us, redeems us. Not our efforts, right? Not our works so that no one can say, I deserved it or I got in or what are they doing here? Because according to me, they don't deserve it. Now, here is why 
Jesus' words and actions are so challenging for us. Here's why things like Ephesians chapter 2 are so challenging for us. Because if we're honest, we believe one or if not two things about God, okay? We believe that God loves us based on our past, right? We think, well, here's what I've done in my life the last couple years, last year, last month, last week, yesterday. And so because of what I've done in the past, therefore, my acceptability to God is based on that. If I had a good week, I can come in here and I can praise God and I can pray and I know that he hears me. And if I had a bad week, I probably shouldn't be here, but it's probably the right thing to do. So he stops being mad at me. So I'll kind of come in here and just kind of like, mm, you know, and just kind of wait it out, right? We think God loves us based on our past. That's the issue that the Pharisee has with this sinner. Or what we also might think is this, that God loves us based on our future, God, so what we think is like, like it's a line of credit to pay back. So what do we do? God, if you do this for me, I promise to do X, Y, and Z, or I promise to stop doing A, B, and C. What we're saying is, well, my past isn't good enough, so I'm going to bank on my future to get you to respond or to forgive me or to love me or whatever it is. We often think God loves us based on our past or what we promise to do in the future. But what you and I need to understand is that God's affection for you and for me isn't based on our past. It is not based on our future. It's based on Jesus's past, and we get Jesus's future for those who trust in him. That's what it's on. And so this is how people who we don't think deserve it can get in. The gospel of Jesus, that his righteousness is imputed, or what that means is it is given to us for those who repent and trust in him, not who were perfect in the past and not for who, who promises to be better in the future. It is based on what Jesus has done, his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection, and in our trust in him. The gospel is not about what you have done. It's about what God has done for you in Jesus. And this is how Jesus can say things like the prostitute, the tax collector, this woman will come into the kingdom of God first. In other words, uh, what this is, it is, it is an invitation to release ourselves from our self-righteousness. This is an invitation to release ourselves for our self-righteousness. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't really think I'm self-righteous. Like most of us would say, well, I'm not a Pharisee. Like I don't think I'm self-righteous. Here's all self-righteousness is. Thinking you can be good enough by yourself. That's what self-righteousness is. Thinking you can be good enough by yourself. Whether or not you're a Pharisee, if you say, hey, I don't need Jesus. I'm good enough on myself, by myself. Biblically speaking, that is self-righteousness. Therefore, our only hope our only hope is to cast ourselves on the one who actually was and is righteous. It is not you and it is not me, it's Jesus. That is our only hope, to cast ourselves on him and that through him on his behalf, we can receive the grace and mercy of God. Again, this is how the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners can enter the kingdom of God before the Pharisees who are doing, quote unquote, the right things. Because these sinners, like this woman, she realizes that she is in need of grace. She is in need of grace. But the quote-unquote good people don't think they really need grace and therefore won't come to Jesus. You won't come to Jesus if you think you are good enough on your own. In other words, it is really easy for us to read the scriptures and mock the Pharisees while being one yourself. It's really easy for us to do that. Psh, judgmental. Psh, can't believe they, they're judging that woman. The question... Are you coming to Jesus? If you're not coming to Jesus, scripturally speaking, you and I are just like the Pharisees. Now, our measurement of what is good has changed based on our culture, right? But if you don't need Jesus, it's the same attitude as the Pharisees. I don't need you. I don't need you. 
And here's what's incredible about the incredible irony about the grace of God is this, that those who think they don't deserve to be in, or sorry, those who think they deserve to be in, Jesus says you're out. And those who think they deserve to be out, or should I say, no, they deserve to be out, Jesus says you're in. That's what Jesus says. Or put another way, right? Everyone in hell will think they deserve to be in heaven. And everyone in hell will think they deserve to be in hell. Or say, everyone in heaven will think they deserve to be in hell. That's what this gospel does. It turns our world upside down because we are saved by grace alone. We're saved by grace alone. Now, can I just point this out? You might be reading the story of Jesus and this woman and, and be thinking, man, bump those traditional Pharisees, like, get it, you know, Jesus is awesome, and he just wants to, he wants this woman to be her, her authentic self, right? She's a sexually liberated woman in front of these sexually oppressive, patriarchal, pharisaical men, and you're like, get it, girl, right? Slay queen, like, you be you, right? That's what you think you might going on here, right? <laughs> Can I just point this out? Can I just point this out? This woman, this woman is in tears, because she hates her old life of sin and wants a new one. That's why she's there. That's why she's there. Jesus clearly calls her a sinner, and he uses those words, and then he forgives her and, but while not condoning her behavior. Yet he forgives her. He literally says, there is now no condemnation. And then remember, she breaks her jar, pours out all of her perfume because she doesn't need it again. Because Jesus has radically changed her life. Or put another way, Jesus saves us where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He saves you where you are, not based on your past or based on how you promise to be better in the future. He meets you right where you are. And he, through the power of his spirit, that is what changes you. Not your promise, self-will, white knuckle, I'm going to be better. It's walking with Jesus and allowing him to change your heart and desires. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's a pretty well-known verse. We often don't read verse 10 of Ephesians. It then says this. So not by works that no one can boast. And then it says this, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are created for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. In other words, God invites you to change and to walk into new life so that you don't have to, not because you're trying to get something from God, but because you know you're already loved. Because you're already loved and redeemed and forgiven, come and find the better way to life. It kind of makes me think of our son, Roman, he's five. And he loves sports. And so he'll watch literally anything, like anything. Football's his favorite. There was like the senior bowl on, like college, like nothing. And he's like, I want to watch that. Or like he'll watch these replays on YouTube TV of like, you know, the previous night's games. And so, but anyway, we'll watch sports. He loves Duke, all these things. And so when we're watching a sports game, one of two things are happening. One, he's like running around in the living room pretending to play like football or hockey himself. And the other one is he'll jump on the couch and he'll snuggle up right next to me every time. He's in one of those two postures. He's running around or he's snuggling up with his dad. And he does that because he knows that he is loved, that he can act a fool, like pretending like interception. He plays this football game. It's like 199 every, every week, every, every time he plays, like totally unrealistic, right? That's what he does. Well, or he comes to me because he knows that he's loved. And I'm sitting here, I'm like, this is awesome because like at any moment he's going to be like, this is lame. Like, don't touch me, right? But he still does it because he knows that he's loved. And that's what God, I mean, you can be acting a fool. You can be acting crazy and you can still come to me. It's why Jesus says this in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commands. So Jesus says, 
Now, here's the thing. Some of you might read that as a threat, right? If you love me, you better do what I say, right? That's, you read that. Can I just say, this isn't a threat. It's not a threat. Rather, what this is is simply a principle that if you love me, you will walk with me. You will follow me. Now, you might be saying, what does that look like? Well, next week, we're starting uh, our new sermon series through the, through the New Testament book of James. It's hyper practical. So we're going to talk exactly, man, what does this actually look like to practically live out our faith? So, so come back for that. But for now, I just want to leave you with this encouragement. Maybe you're new to this whole Jesus thing, and you're, you're trying to figure out what it looks like, and you're not even sure, like, what are all the rules? Like, what does it look like to, to honor Jesus? Can I just say, here is my encouragement to you, and honestly, for all of us, Man, just fall in love with Jesus. Just fall in love with Jesus. That's what matters, and the rest will follow. The rest of it, man, it will follow. And so as we end, I just want to say this. Um, there is a right response to the love and grace of Jesus. There is actually a right response to this. So in the ancient world, in the first century, where this, this dinner party took place, in this culture, um, there were a few customary things that would often happen if you invited over, someone over to your house, particularly if it was like a dinner party thing and you had people who were um, like more wealthy, like this Pharisee. Three things would typically happen. First, you would be greeted with a kiss of greeting at the door. Second, you would be offered an ointment or some oil because people stank. Right? You ever watch The Chosen? It's like 100 plus degrees and you got one robe and you're wearing it every single day. Right? You stink. Right? So you'd be offered some sort of ointment. And third, you would have somebody wash your feet. It was typically someone low class or a slave or a servant because your feet were dirty. And as you saw in the picture, like, they're kind of like around each other. Like, they're not like under the table. Like, they're around. Your feet are dirty. You're wearing sandals. There's animals everywhere. You would have someone wash, wash your feet. Now, in this story, this woman does all three of these things to Jesus. Does all three of them. She sees Jesus at this dinner party, and she wants to honor him. She wants to honor him. Maybe because she, he is the only man who treated her with dignity and respect. So she wants to honor him. And she doesn't care what it looks like. She doesn't care who sees it. She just wants to express her love for Jesus. And so she does these things that were not done to Jesus when he walked into the door. So what I want to do again, as I end, I want to maybe give you a visual depiction of the Christian life. A visual depiction of the Christian life. Here's the first picture. It has to do with salvation. So with salvation, when it comes to Jesus, right, all of us at some point, if you're a follower of Jesus, have this moment when you realize, hey man, I don't have it all together. Like I have fallen short of the glory of God. I'm going to repent and trust in the Lord. There's this moment of salvation. And after you trust in Jesus, what, here's what begins to happen. One of the things that begins to happen as you walk with him, your knowledge of God's holiness increases. You can put the next one on the screen. Right? It says, if you can't read that, higher and higher knowledge of God's holiness. You begin to read and to see, oh, well, he is wholly different. Like he is a God of grace and love and mercy. And he invites me into a better way. You begin to see, man, I am not like him. Like I cannot live up to his standard. If you've read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, like what does it look like to live the way of Jesus? You're like, that ain't me. I, in my own power, I cannot do that. So your knowledge of God's holiness increases. Now, while your knowledge of God's holiness increases, something else changes. Here's the next one. It says deeper and deeper knowledge of our sinfulness. So you begin to see God more and more who he is, and then you begin to see yourself more and more of who you are in comparison to him. And this gulf uh, seems to develop in your life. What's actually fascinating is you can kind of see this happen in the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters in our New Testament. 
The very first letter that he wrote that is in our New Testament, he begins it this way. It says, Paul, an apostle. His first letter, he begins with an introduction that says, Paul, an apostle. Now, a little bit after that, one of his other letters then says this, Paul, the least of all the apostles. So eventually, and then another letter that he writes even after that one, he eventually introduces one of his letters by saying this, Paul, the least of all the saints. So not just like the apostles, but the saints being Christians. Like, I'm the least of everyone. And then his very last letter that Paul writes in our New Testament before he was executed for his teaching and faith in Jesus in Rome, he says this, Christ died for sinners among whom I'm the worst. Now, this is the apostle Paul we're talking about here. The longer that Paul walked with Jesus, the more aware of his sinfulness he became. Now, the irony here is that as you walk with Jesus, you probably do actually start sinning a little bit less, but you begin to see this gulf has existed and you begin to see yourself for who you are and you begin to say, man, I am not worthy of to be called a son or daughter of Jesus. So, so guess what happens as this gulf gets bigger and bigger in your life? Here's what happens. The cross, the cross, the cross and your awareness of it gets bigger and bigger in your life. The beauty of Jesus and who God is and what he has done for you gets bigger and bigger in your life. And so in this passage that we read today of Simon and the Pharisee and Jesus, uh, what Jesus said to Simon, he says, whoever has been forgiven little loves little, but whoever has been forgiven much loves much. The Pharisee thought, I have nothing really to be forgiven for, loves little. This prostitute, man, I've blown it. She knows her stance before God and she loves him much in response. So the question is, as you become aware of your sin, guess what gets really, really big? Love. Your love for the Lord gets really big when you realize who he is and what he has done. This woman realized the huge gap that Jesus filled for her. Can I just say, man, if you're a follower of Jesus, when was the last time as you sat, sit and reflect on the gospel that it like made you personally emotional? That like God and his perfection up in heaven doesn't need you, yet wants you. You can't offer him anything he can't have, yet he invites you in. Put another way, man, worship is just love expressed. Whether it's worship on a Sunday morning, honoring him in your day-to-day -day life, your worship, my worship is simply our love expressed to God. And the more we accurately know who God is, the bigger our worship becomes. So I just want to close with this point. This is more of a question this morning. In response to what we've read this morning, how do you need to respond to Jesus? All of us, follower of Jesus or not quite sure, how do you need to respond to Jesus? Some of you, man, some of you need to give your life to him today. Not tomorrow, not because, hey, I promise to do better in the future or I haven't been good enough in my past. That's pharisaical thinking. That is not gospel thinking. Some of you today need to repent of your sins. And by repentance, it's just my favorite definition of repentance, just being honest. God already knows anyway. Just be honest with what he already knows. You need to trust him. You need to come to him like this woman, knowing she has nothing to offer. Yet Jesus loves her and forgives her where she is. Some of you may today need to give your life to Jesus. Some of you maybe need to be honest and repent of some sin because God loves you and wants you to experience freedom. Like he sees it and you're acting like it ain't there. Like, man, just be honest. You need to repent. You need to trust me. Or perhaps maybe you're following Jesus. Perhaps you have withheld the gospel from someone because you don't think they deserve it. You don't think they deserve it because of what they've done or what they've done in the past. In your mind, 
you kind of believe like, hey, they've been a bad person. They don't deserve this. Maybe there is someone in your life that you need to intentionally pray for and share the love of Jesus with. Because just like God chased you down, he wants to use you to chase them down as well. But I know some of you, man, some of you need, need to cling to the promises of God in this season. There's a health diagnosis, relational problem, maybe with a family member. Uh, maybe there's a financial issue, man. And you're just like, God, I don't know. Some of you have to choose to trust and to cling to the promises of God. But here's what I know, that all of us, all of us need to worship God his due. That's what we need to do in response to this.